what a joy to sing the 10,000 charms that are available in our dear Savior. If you have a copy of God's Word, the Bible, open it with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 36. Psalm 36. If you're new to the things of God's Word, it's just about in the middle, a little to the left of the Bible. Psalm 36. Hear now the word of the living God. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant, the Lord. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes. When he finds out his iniquity and when he hates, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me. And let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down. And are not able to rise. This is the word of the living God. And together we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, O Lord, we ask that you would give us what we need to be nourished in your word. We pray that. The living Christ, by the Spirit of God, might be working in the hearts of people in this place. Help us, O Lord, we ask. As we hear in the voice of our shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 36 invites us to consider something that we don't often necessarily go to the Scriptures to consider And that is the utter wickedness of human beings. Psalm 36 opens with these startling words. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. David, David defined by the opening of this psalm as a servant of the Lord, is considering, is reflecting, is meditating, is musing upon in his heart, the transgression, the ways of the wicked. This psalm undoubtedly will tell us other things, for against the backdrop of the wickedness of sinful, puny, finite human beings is the mountainous glory, the mercy and righteousness and faithfulness of God. But towards the end of the psalm, just as it begins, there is a discussion again, Of the wicked. 4 and verse 12, David will say, 
There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. We have, if you will, two bookends which describe wicked human beings. And in the middle, a discussion of their sin, their utter folly, and the glories of the God who will save any who come to him. I want us to walk through this psalm this morning. And as we do, we will consider the ways of wicked men. In vivid color, this painting of Psalm 36 describes for us the ways of wicked human beings. But we'll also consider the ways of the living God. For there, the tall tree that stands seemingly larger than life, that is the wickedness of human beings, is seen to be puny and small against the backdrop of the glorious mountainous realities that are the mercy and covenant faithfulness of God. And so the psalm will end as we consider the ways of the righteous man. The ways of the righteous man. Let's consider first the ways of wicked men. Notice David opens an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. And then there is a statement. Some would take this statement as the core issue. Every other description that follows is a color, perhaps. The main picture is the end of verse 1. There is no fear of God before his eyes. I don't know if you've often considered when you see the riots in the streets, when you hear of murders, when you consider how society seemingly is moving in a more evil direction, I don't know if you often think That the core issue behind all of it is that these wicked individuals do not fear God. It seems as if the psalmist is saying that the fear of God is absent from the hearts of wicked individuals. But there's more here. For David will say there is no fear of God before his eyes. And then give some descriptions. Perhaps these are new categories. Or maybe they are descriptions of what it looks like, fruit of what it looks like for a person not to fear the living God. Either way, we'll consider the ways of wicked men. No fear of God can perhaps be seen in verse 2 in the ways of man. In verse 3, in the words of man. And in verse 4, the thoughts of man. Let's look at this absence of the fear of the living God. Now, before we do that, we need to ask ourselves, what does this fear of the living God mean? Well, if you're reading the Bible from the first page until now, you've gotten quite an exhilarating story, haven't you? For the living God creates all things out of nothing. How does the Bible open? In the beginning, God. There's no description, is there? There's no definition of God. There's just a statement of his existence and his reality. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it is the spirit of God, isn't it? It begins to form. Verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1, the spirit of the living God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God creates all things in the space of six days, Genesis chapter 1 reveals. The pinnacle of his creative power and glory is man and woman. They image God. 
They are finite. They are measured. He is infinite and unmeasurable. And yet they picture him. They look like him, much like a statue often pictures its sculptor. Well, Adam and Eve fall into sin, don't they? They choose the way of rebellion against God, which is really, as others have defined it, cosmic treason. You see, sin against God is not simply doing something that God finds slightly problematic. God, who is the author of life, imprints on their souls and gives to their ears good and righteous commands, and they shirk them. They throw them off. We would rather have death and rebellion than live with the shackles of the God who is life. And this changes everything in the Bible, doesn't it? Because from this very moment now, the creature that is the most able to image the living God, that image is marred. Every thought, every word, every deed is now tainted with this sin. Now, you you might think to yourself, that would be perhaps a great place for there to be a period in the end of God's story. God creates. Creatures rebel. God wipes the slate clean. But in Genesis chapter 3, we read the glorious reality that God gives a promise to human beings and puts it in their ears. There will come one who will crush Satan in all the ways of evil. And that promise is then traced throughout all of the Bible, isn't it? So by the time we get here, we've gotten through Noah and God saving him in an ark. Abraham, God giving Abraham some promises. Hey, look, in your seed, in your family, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. God preserving the world. Why? Salvation is coming. God taking a man out of the Middle Eastern desert and saying, I'm going to do something with your family. Why? Salvation is coming. Abraham has sons and grandsons, Isaac and Jacob. And the story moves forward. And all the while, the scriptures constantly point to God being the center. That God is the one to fear. That God is the one to reverence. That all that we have in our hearts should not be for created things, but for the living God. David, then, the king of God's people, who now are not just a family, but a nation. David, the one who will be the king after God's own heart. Many scholars would say wrote this kind of a psalm when he was being chased by a king that God had rejected by the name of Saul. And what does he say? Human beings have lost the fear and reverence and awe and respect for of God. That is our core problem. Something else has caused the eye of our heart to glimmer. We have turned after other things and we reverence them and we fear them and we honor them, but not the living God. And so our hearts are full of ways and words and thoughts that are anti-God. And we get a picture of this, don't we? Look at verse 2. Speaking of wicked men, for he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. How is the lack of the fear of God shown in the ways of wicked men? Well... By flattery. And they flatter 
themselves. You often think of flattery as, I'm going to flatter someone else. I'm going to kind of butter you up so you'll do something for me. That's typically what flattery is. But here, human beings are pictured as flattering themselves in their own eyes. The New King James says, when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. Uh, The World English Bible, another translation says, for he flatters himself in his own eyes too much to detect and hate his sin. And I think you're getting an even clearer sense, perhaps, for our modern ears of what this verse is saying. We flatter ourselves to the point that we cannot detect our sin any longer. We lack the fear of the Lord, which Proverbs 1.7 says is the beginning of wisdom. And this is shown in how we dismiss sin. We make little of it, or we think that it will never be found out. What are the ways of men? Well, we lack the fear of God, and that is seen in our ways. But it's also seen in our words, isn't it? Look at verse 3. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. This fear of God permeates what we do, but it permeates what we say. In the 1700s, a Baptist pastor and theologian, John Gill, commenting on this verse, writes these words, quote, not only sinful, but sin itself. His mouth is full of cursing and bitterness of filthy and unchaste words, of corrupt communication, lying, deceit, and flattery. Out of the abundance of the wickedness of his heart, his mouth speaketh. End quote. Gill gets it absolutely right. Mouths, tongues, lips that were designed to speak of the glories of God have now been turned into mouths that flatter themselves. Mouths that tear down others. Mouths that talk of sin in ways that reveal that we now fear and reverence and have all for sin. The second part of verse 3 says, He has ceased to be wise and to do good. It's almost as if David is saying, He used to have seeming wisdom. Seeming profession of goodness. Perhaps a seeming profession of religion. But that has changed. You know anyone like that? They used to seem to walk in ways that were good. They used to seem to walk in the ways perhaps of God, of his church, of the Bible. But they have walked away. And now their very words reveal to you that they care nothing for the living God. Well, in addition to the ways and words of wicked men, you are also given a picture of thoughts Look at verse four. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. A couple of poetic phrases here. He devises wickedness on his bed. That's a way of saying he never rests from considering, from mulling over, from thinking, from musing on evil. Now, yes, there are times where literally human beings are laying in their beds thinking and musing on sin. But it's a day thing and a night thing. It's a 24-hour thing for wicked individuals. And friends, one of the benefits of reading this text is that we might be willing to say, well, my ways aren't that evil. My words aren't that evil. I don't even really cuss all that much. But 
then the psalmist takes us right to our thoughts. That's probably the one thing that all of us would never want to have revealed ever. What we think about. I can handle people seeing my ways. I'm going to have to apologize some. I can handle people seeing my words and hearing them. I'm going to have to apologize some. But please don't ever let them know my thoughts. There's no coming back from that. The ways of wicked men, lacking a fear of God, are seen in their deeds, their words, and their thoughts. Notice, in addition to it being a 24-hour thing, the psalmist says he sets himself in a way that is not good. This is the posture of our minds. There's a posture here. We set ourselves here. This is where we want to be. This is the pool that we want to swim in. On our beds, all the time. Posture of our mind. That's where we want to live. He does not abhor evil, verse 4. No longer do we love what is good. You see, when we cease to love the living God, we cease to love and to long for that which is good. The ways of wicked men. You might be hearing us walk through this first part of the sermon, this first part of the psalm this morning and thinking to yourself, boy, this is really a horrible picture of the world, isn't it? Everyone out there is so full of this kind of wickedness. And because of social media and TV and the Internet, we're able to see this wickedness on full display. And sometimes I think we think things are getting worse. And in some sense, there is the reality that sinners have become more flagrant, but we just have the ability to see it all a lot more now, don't we? Constantly. It's in our pocket. We pull it out. There it is. And you might get the sense that Psalm 36, 1 through 4, is really a description of evil men outside of the walls. And we'll see in just a few moments that really it is. But how does the New Testament use this song? Turn over to the book of Romans for just a moment. Romans chapter 3, verse 18. There, Paul, writing a decade or two after Christ has died on the cross for sinners and been raised from the dead, seen by some 500 witnesses and then ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high, having commissioned apostles to plant churches, And to spread the word all throughout the world, Paul writes, describing, guess what? Every one of us. This is you. This is me. This is everyone. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Maybe you value what the Bible says, maybe you don't. But if you do value what the Bible says, then you need to understand that one of the things that the Bible says is that nobody is righteous. Not one single human being. Now there's a lot of scripture passages quoted there in Romans 3. Look down to verse 18 of Romans 3. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul Harkens back to David and says what David says about wicked men, perhaps pursuing him against the will of God. That is a good description of every single human being. Yes, the ones that we see on the TV screen who are 
holding to the issue in the opposite direction than us, as well as who we were before we came to Christ. Psalm 36, 1 through 3 is the the description of the ways of wicked men, but we could just say this is the ways of men. No fear of God in what they do, what they say, and what they think. Do you fear the living God? Does that drive what you do, what you say, what you think? Is a reverence and an awe and a respect for God something that keeps churning over in your heart and in your mind that when you find sin there, it bothers you? Perhaps sometimes it bothers you a little. Perhaps sometimes it bothers you so much it brings you to your knees. But there is an awe, there is a respect for the living God. The fact that you are living quorum Deo before the face of God. And that that begins to drive and define your words and your ways and your thoughts. And you may go several days without even thinking of the living God. But when he comes back to your mind, there's a continual reminder that he is the mountain of all glory. And that it bothers you again, afresh, anew, that your ways and your words and your thoughts, that last hour, that last day, that last week, have been against his glorious ways. Do you fear the living God? Wicked men do not. And we were all once. Psalm 36, 1 through 4 people. But, you know, the psalmist doesn't just give us the ways of wicked men. He moves, interestingly enough, perhaps shockingly, to the ways of the living God. Second, verses one through four gives us a picture of the ways of wicked men. And then verses five through nine give us a picture of the ways of the living God. It's almost as if without any kind of explanation, David shifts from describing wicked people to describing God. Look what he says in verse 5. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Notice the poetic difference. Man's ways in verses 1 through 4 are limited to little things. His eyes, his bed, his mouth. But God's ways are pictured poetically as extending all the way to the sky and to the depths of the earth. Now, why does David give us this picture? Is this picture of God's ways, which are clearly in contrast to the ways of the wicked, are they given just to show that there's a difference between God and sinful human beings? Is the contrast given, here's the little hill that is the wickedness of human beings. And here is the great mountain range of the glories of the mercies of God. Is that that why David does it? Or maybe as Matthew Poole, Puritan of the 1600s, argues, the former is how the wicked treated David. And now David is going to shift to show how God treats David. Think about that. He's on the run, it seems. He's being attacked, and he's beginning to describe the evil of those who are pursuing him on the ground and the glories of the one who is pursuing him and providing for him 
from all of eternity. Or maybe it's as John Gill, the 1700s Reformed Baptist, is arguing that David is doing this to show the reasons why wicked men are not yet consumed. I like to take the eclectic view. I think it's all of the above. You take a test in school sometimes, you think, I don't know the answer. Thankfully, the teacher puts on there, D, all of the above. Sometimes that's not the right answer. But it does bring a source of comfort, doesn't it? I think David is contrasting the ways of the wicked with the glorious ways and backdrop of God. And yes, he's being pursued, it seems. And so he's showing the difference between wicked men and the glories of God. But he's also giving us a picture here. Why haven't these wicked men been stomped out? Because God's mercy is greater than the worst degree of the sin in our heart. God is long-suffering. He is patient, not willing that any should perish, the Scripture says. So what ways are described here? We, we saw the ways of the wicked men, the ways of the living God. You could organize this in a variety of ways. I've just sort of put three sub-points here. First, loving-kindness. Loving-kindness. It's not really that original. The word is in the text. But it's actually in the text in multiple places. You see it in verse 7. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. You see it in verse 10. O continue your loving kindness. But actually the first place that you see this Hebrew word is verse 5. Your mercy could be translated your loving kindness. It's the same Greek word or Hebrew word. Excuse me. The Hebrew word chesed. Covenant. Keeping. Love. Mercy, loving kindness, loyalty. Words have ranges of meaning. So the first thing that David says is the ways of the wicked who don't fear you are all of these disastrous things. But as I'm describing you, God, the first word that comes to mind is mercy, loyalty, covenant keeping love. And how does David sing of this? He says, your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. The sense is, is that it reaches to the heavens. Boys and girls, can you go to the heavens? Can you leave the earth like a bird and fly up miles above where you stand? No, you cannot. Perhaps you can get in an airplane and, and, and you can climb several miles into the sky, but you, you really can't ever reach fully into the heavens. But if you could... God's mercy for you in Christ would be there. Your mercy, O Lord, it extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness, how far does it reach? How far above me? The tree? The mountain? Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. It's unending, in other words. But David also speaks of the loving kindness of God. In verse 7, how precious is your loving kindness, O Lord. You could translate that Hebrew word, how rare. How rare is your loving kindness, your mercy, your covenant-keeping love. And it's so rare, it's so precious. Verse 7 continues by saying, you can rest in it. What can you absolutely rest in here on the earth? You might buy a house, but eventually the house will fall down around you. 
Eventually, you'll pass it on to someone else and you'll leave it. You can rest in relationships, but eventually people will let you down at some point. What can you actually rest in secure? The loving kindness of God. David says that therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Look, they're pursuing me. If that is the context behind why David is writing this psalm, think of what he's saying. All around me are wicked men who don't fear the living God. And their ways, as difficult as they are for me, are puny. Eyes, bed, thoughts. But God... God's ways are unending. They reach to the skies. You can rest in it. He says, therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Think of that picture of an animal being able to come under the shadow of its mother's wing to find protection. This is actually an image used all throughout the Bible. Two examples. Turn over to Deuteronomy 32 or just listen to how God is described there. Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 and 11. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Who is the him? Well, it's God's people. Who is the he? God. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on his wings. It's used as well in the book of Ruth, isn't it? The book of Ruth, chapter 2 and verse 12. There we read these words. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. David is just picking up the biblical images of the word of God that's come before. So this loving kindness then secondly is seen as trustworthiness. You can rest there. You can trust it. Look at verse 6. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. You preserve man and beast, O Lord. Notice that in comparison to the evil and shaky ways of men, God's righteousness is firm and his judgments are deep. Listen, if you spend any period of time this coming week listening to news outlets, seeing pictures of all the sinfulness in the streets of our wicked cities in which we walk. Just open the Word of God and begin to read. Anywhere, really. But, but open, open the Word of God to the book of Proverbs, perhaps. Or, or open it to Exodus 20, as you heard read earlier, the law of God. And just begin to meditate on how pristine and how pure God's truths are. It nails us every time. I never forget the time that I was reading through the book of Proverbs. And I spent, I don't know how many days, kind of just reading through various verses. And I came away with the reality that God, His ways are pristine and He nails our ways every time. Every single time. He knows who we are. We don't often know who we are, but He knows who we are. And as we read his word, we see that it is trustworthy. Not only is God's ways, ways that are full of loving kindness, but they're full of trustworthiness. He makes right judgments. He is righteous. Like the great mountains, 
Thirdly, God's ways involve provision. Look what look what David says there, verse eight. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. But with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. In verse eight, God is seen as the one who offers his home to satisfy others. Allows people to drink from the river of his pleasures. This theme is also a theme that works its way throughout the pages of Scripture. Psalm 46, verse 4. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Recently, my family was driving back from vacation and the thought came to mind as we were coming to a large city in the northeast. I wonder why they picked this spot for this city. Why did they camp out here some two, three hundred years ago? And then the thought came to me as we saw on the GPS, you know, that thing that talks to you about one second too late. You miss the turn and then it tells you you were supposed to turn there. You see the map and. It was very clear. The reason they settled here some 300 years ago is because there's a river that comes right through the center of the city. And the city has half the city on one side and half the city on the other. That's the way that we have always been. We build cities where there is water. The psalmist in multiple places describes the true river as God's presence. In fact... The last time we see this description is on the last page of Scripture, Revelation 22, don't we? And we see that what? Heaven is described as a city with a river running through it. A river that is the presence and inhabitation of the living God. In verse 9, David says, For with you is the fountain of life. This is everywhere. I won't even read these passages. Proverbs 13, 14, Proverbs 14, 27, Matthew 22, 31, Revelation 21, 3 through 7. The way of salvation in the Bible is often pictured as springs or a fountain of life. In fact, one of the prophets of the Old Testament will simply talk about What it means to come to the Savior. Come to the water, he'll say. You see, God's ways are ways of loving kindness, trustworthiness, and ways of provision. Whereas the ways of wicked men lack the fear of God in all that they do and in all that they say and in all that they think. But David writes out three more verses. And in these verses, I think we get a picture wherein we can close. And that is, thirdly, the ways of the righteous man. You might be expecting three more. If you're a note taker, well, he gave us three for men. He gave us three for God. He's going to give us three more here. No, I'm not. Because it seems as though the end of this psalm is simply a prayer where the two themes that have come before it are the two themes that are prayed about. The mercy and loving kindness of God and the utter begging of God, please don't let me go the way of wicked men. 
Look what he says in verse 10. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. What's the first way of a righteous man? It's relying on God's mercy. You could translate this, oh, continue your mercy, your loyalty, your faithfulness, your covenant-keeping love to those who know you, including me, O oh Lord. Maybe you're new to the things of the Bible and you think, well, I know the Bible's about Jesus. Haven't really gotten to Jesus yet. I kind of know who David is. The, the preacher today sort of gave me a story. You see, David's great, 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 great grandson would be born of the Virgin Mary. And he would be the true king, the one who would never sin, who would glorify God in all things perfectly, the way that Adam was supposed to do it. He would be truly God and truly man. He would live a righteous life and he would die on the cross. And when he died on the cross, God would pour out the judgment and the condemnation for sins and wickednesses on him. So that any who trust in Him, God's final and ultimate word, any who fall onto Christ will find mercy and forgiveness for their wickedness. So when David says in Psalm 36.10, continue your loving kindness, your mercy to those who know you, this is the David who would ultimately be saved some hundreds of years later by the blood of his great-great-great-great-grandson. Are you relying, friend, on God's mercy? Because your ways have already been described. You do evil things. You say evil words. You think evil thoughts. Your whole existence is bent against God. You do not fear the living God. And quite frankly, you don't want Him unless His Spirit awakens you to see that you are desperately devoid of true life. And this He will give you. We sang this song earlier. I don't know if you caught it. The last verse says this. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. That word fitness, we just think fitness center, don't we? I'm a fit individual. I'm not talking about physical fitness here, but spiritual fitness. Let not conscience make you linger, nor or not of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that God requires of you is what? To feel your need of Him. The next verse actually says, this He gives you. What does it mean to come to Jesus for salvation? It means you see that you need Him. That you cannot save yourself. That you don't have a righteousness to stand before the living God on that great day. And that you will be turned away and sent to condemnation that you have earned and deserved. But David is crying out here in this Old Testament song, Lord, continue your mercy to those who know you. Do you know Christ, friend? Do you know him? Have you seen that there's no fitness within you to stand before the living God, but that in love He sent His Son to stand in your place and to be your righteousness? David gives us a picture of the righteous man. It's not the man who's changed all of his ways and knows all the right answers. It's the man that's relying solely on the mercy of God. But secondly, David prays relying on God's preservation from the ways of men. 
Notice that the psalm begins and ends with the discussion of wicked people. And here David ends with an acknowledgement that he doesn't want to go the way of the wicked whose end is sure. Now it seems most likely that he means, Lord, protect me from wicked people. They're after me. But an implication of a prayer like that is also, Lord, preserve me from being drawn into the ways of those people. How often do you pray that? So angry at the way that the world is. Right that you should be, hopefully with righteous anger. I'm zealous for the ways of God. Right you should be. How dare these people do these things in the streets? You're probably right. At least many of the times. How often is your prayer, oh Lord, if it wasn't for your mercy, I'd be out there doing the same thing. I would be out there doing the same thing. Preserve me, Lord. Let not, as David says, the foot of pride come against me. They're their prideful feet. And my own prideful feet walking behind them. The Scottish theologian David Dixon says this about this text. The, wall, the fall of the wicked is not like the fall of the godly. For though the godly fall sundry, boys and girls, that means many. For though the godly fall sundry times, yet they recover their feet again. But a fall is prepared for the wicked, after which they shall not recover themselves. They are cast down and shall not be able to rise. The ways of the righteous man are ways relying on God's mercy and relying on God each and every moment to preserve our souls to the end when the wicked come against us and when our own hearts are tempted to walk right after them. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked, the ways of wicked men. No fear in their eyes, and you see it in what they do, what they say, what they think. But against that is the glorious backdrop of the ways of the living God. He is full of covenant-keeping love and mercy and loving kindness. He's trustworthy, and he provides. You can rest right under the shadow of his wing. And those who are resting in him are pictured simply as constantly... Relying on God's mercy and his preservation until the final day. Are you that sort of righteous man? Relying on another and not at all on yourself. Let's pray. Almighty God, help your people this day. When we consider the ways of the wicked, the ways of our God, and the ways of those who trusted in Christ. Help us, O Lord, to consider how great is your loving kindness to those who are your own. We pray this in Jesus' name.